And of course, it's Wednesday night, so we are going deep here at the look at this this RSP Angelo Fantasy podcast with Brandon Angelo at Angelo Fantasy about Walt. How we doing? Yeah. We're doing good, and we got a good show. So, what's fun about the show is everybody loves the show, and they know that we're gonna go. We're we're gonna do a lot of stuff with this. So, let's dispense with everything else, and let's get it rolling. Let's talk about Quentin Johnson. I saw you tweet about him this weekend. Everybody's kind of down on this guy. So, what are your what are your thoughts about Quentin Johnson and his developmental art? Yeah, I think really in in broad spectrum, this is a developmental traits-based prospect playing like a developmental traits-based prospect right they didn't in my opinion this brass did not draft quentin johnson to contribute the first six weeks of of his rookie year right i think they drafted him with justin herbert in mind long term and i think that's the vision and i would i wrote early on i would be surprised if quentin johnson played at all his first the first third of the, his rookie season, right? I could see a potential breakout later, but he's not even involved in the offense. Like, it's not that he's not on the field. He, he, he's he been playing. He's just, like, the tertiary option in that offense doesn't get much run. Like, even when, look at Josh Palmer. When Josh Palmer was the tertiary option behind Allen and Williams, like, he didn't get much run. He'd get a deep target here and there, but what we're seeing, especially in the Cowboys game, you know, Johnson's running a lot of clear outs, right? I love the game routes. Um, that's really it. Like, he's not doing very much to be, you know, to be a baller, right? He's, he's not getting 50-50s. Um, he's not getting the ball in space. They're not scheming in touch as much. I think that will come because I think there's a lot of pressure on the Chargers right now to succeed because they haven't, right? And I think Staley's feeling pressure too, because it's you know they should be winning. Like the like the the brass thinks this is a playoff, not a, not only a playoff team, but a team that should go to the playoff and win a game at least, right? And so I think they're gonna, you know, the the upper level management's gonna be like you you draft this kid in the first round, and he's like, why is he not? Why is he not helping us? get to where we need to go um and that's the tough part about his development is he's a longer term guy there's a lot to clean up and you and i talked about you know his catching his hand positioning um and just sort of the nuance that he didn't have available to him really in sunny dyke's offense like he wasn't asked to do a whole lot it was really his he he won on two routes delayed crosses which is not much winning there it was just that was an easy, easy pitch and catch. And then just go balls. Yeah. Right. Cause he's just bigger, faster, stronger than <laughs> most collegiate defensive back. So, and we'll deal with the, we'll, we'll deal with the drops because, yeah. because for it's like Tevin Coleman in the, in the Indiana offense, we may run, you know, outside zone 15 times in a game. He may hit two of them and get, you know, 150 yards off of two of those touches, right. and the rest he's basically making mistakes. You know, exactly. But, and you look at the Quentin Johnson's games; like he'd have like boom games, yeah. Like against Kansas, he played mostly in the slot, and that's the interesting part is like most of his really good games he played a lot in the slot, but then he'd have games where he's you know like disappears and goes one for 26, yeah, on like three targets. 
Um, and that's just kind of how he was in college and in the NFL too. I, I think he, it's, it's a difficult part to play right now because he, he doesn't have a significant role. Like, yeah. you know, you, you could take a practice squad receiver right now and play the same role Quentin Johnston is. But understanding and keeping in mind that his role is going to be different six games from than six games from there. So I think it's just looking at, too, like, money, like how, like, you know, he was looked at coming into the NFL. He wasn't looked at as someone who's NFL-ready. You put him into an NFL offense, you know, like a Jordan Addison. Yeah. Or like a Zay Flowers, you know, Jackson Smith and Jigba. Like those guys are more NFL ready than Quentin Johnson. But Quentin Johnson has just as much, if not more, upside because of his frame, his movement skill, and what he can do as a decelerator at his side, which is pretty impressive, right? We don't talk about that. The, the good that this kid has is, is pretty is pretty damn good yeah. and impressive. But the murky gray areas are pretty murky and gray. So it, it's going to take some time to clean that up. But it's just interesting of what that Chargers offense is trying to do in general because it hasn't been a good offense. Like, it'd be one thing if that offense was flourishing and he wasn't succeeding. It's They just look like a middle-tier NFL offense right now with what should be a upper-tier NFL quarterback. Yeah. So... That's that's kind of my take on what they're doing. What do you think about Johnson this this Chargers offense? I think for me, for Johnson primarily, is it's fascinating. Johnson is a really great illustration of how one that we view when we look at a quarterback who is unbelievably athletic. We often hear the narratives be, well, he might need a few years to grasp the conceptual intellectual side of playing the quarterback position and we need to be patient with him and give him time and he's a high-end developmental prospect who is um you, you know who you have to draft that early because the physical talents are so good that you can't wait you'll miss out on him and if he hits he's going to be an all-world player but when then we get to wide receiver who by the way has to read the defense in the same way that the quarterback does and be, or at least in similar fashion to be on the same page with him about adjustments and hot routes and has to really be better at the gamesmanship of handling press coverage at a level that they really didn't encounter week in and week out in the NFL. So there's a lot more emphasis on technique concepts and really teamwork with a, a high base level of knowledge. So some of those guys get that quickly. Some of the guys don't have the as many demands placed on them as others because either the quarterback's developing and the quarterback isn't being asked to make changes or make a lot of adjustments that aren't beyond maybe like what they did basically in high school and college. You know, if you were in Lamar Jackson's offense two years ago, um, you probably didn't have as many adjustments as you did with Aaron Rodgers offense because Greg Roman put the shackles on him and we'll talk about that a little bit more but um later but you, you know those differences might be a little bit more you know might be changing in demand but it's fascinating to me that wide receiver is seen as a a physical position more than yeah. it is an intellectual position and quarterback seen more as an intellectual position than a physical position. So we're okay with quarterbacks being drafted early who are not intellectually, conceptually ready 
at least from the narrative point of view of whatever people say. But we're but we demand that these receivers on the same token that they're all if they're physically gifted, they should be on the field and ready right now. So it's a I think what we need to do is have a healthy middle ground and understand that somebody in the major media needs to be able to say, look, some guys will be drafted in the first round because they have high first round of physical ability, but the techniques, the concepts that they're going to be having undertaken the NFL might take more time. And so where they wind up and what demands may be placed on them, it may take them a while. And if they don't work out, they could, you know, if, if these things don't come together, they could become limited players with just super high end athletic ability in the same way that, you know, somebody might've looked at, um, Drew Brees as a second round pick and said, well, all the, the technical skills were there. The con some of the, a lot of the concepts and the capacity to develop in that way would be great. But eventually we saw his arm and said, or Mac Jones, you know, his, yeah. he'd look at his arm and go, you know what? It's just not going to happen. But we thought maybe if we fit it in the system, we could get a really high end guy who's going to develop. We, we need to learn that there's more nuance to it, that just because you have round one attached to your, to your name or round two attached to your name, you, you have to broaden your horizons on what that actually means rather than the simplistic, you know, Monday morning quarterback thing where people say, well, round one, he was round one. He needs to play better. He needs to be ready. Now they've, they've didn't invest well in their draft capital as a result of that. There's more nuance to the game as you described to what's going to be demanded of them. So, you know, I had Johnston as a tier one, um, as a tier two receiver at the bottom of tier one. That's what I as a bottom of tier one for my, for my publication. And while I said, I personally wouldn't invest in him that high. Um, and I'd see him more as a third round guy who would need a little bit more development. I'm not going to argue with a team that says, yeah. that says, look, if he hits, he's one of the top two to three receivers in this class. And that's what I stated. I even say that the first thing I think I said was, let me look at my report. My report said, yeah, if you believe he addresses his ta catching technique and develops, you know, further along, he's at least the second best receiver in this class, at least, yeah, you know, 100%. but if you don't believe that happens and you're, you're worried that it never will, then, you know, now you're looking at a guy who's maybe more along the lines of Robert Meacham and Kevin White and how their careers have turned out, you know, yeah. but if no, they, that's a good point, but if it works out, it's probably better than Braylon Edwards was at his peak. You know, that could be a, so, you know, that's okay. You just have, the problem is, is that fans, you're not going to tell, explain this to your fans probably very well, but fans have to understand that this is kind of how this works. So yeah, I mean, Johnston in this offense right now, I mean, you think about it and it's like, you know, Palmer probably does what they're asking him to do better than what Johnston does at this stage. Maybe not, yeah. you know, you know that, you know, with Keenan Allen, the offense is going to flow through him. Your third option, you've got a lot of guys who can be your third option, depending on what you're putting out on the field in terms of alignment. Is it Everett? You know, is it, is it, you know, one of your veteran, you know, slot options certainly can, can be that. So, 
and then you have your your running back as well. So why are you going to get a guy who you don't feel like is ready to just be automatic on things that you need him to be automatic on where he's going to be in in third down situations or two minute situations where it's really important and he's still thinking through things at the stage that needs to become automatic. So I'm okay with him as a patience play. I honestly think I love the fact if you're a dynasty GM, this is the probably going to start to be the time where I'm already seeing comparisons to him and Jalen Rager as a, like because of the logo yeah, scouting just, stuff. It, it's really interesting because yeah. it's, it's one of those, you know, after six weeks, we're like, oh, we know who this player is going to be. But it's like, look at his own teammate, Mike Williams. Like, I think Mike Williams had under 100 total receiving yards in the rookie season. Yeah. Like 11 for 95 or something. You really don't know what these guys are going to be. But also, too, you got to look at, at TCU. He wasn't asked to do any of the things he's asked to do now. Yeah. Like he's learning essentially from scratch. Like he was scheme the ball. It was, you know, there was there was no big boy routes on Quentin Johnson's tape. Let's put it that way. And he's not gonna come into the NFL and just it's not gonna click right away. It's just not how this that's not how this works. Right. And and that's the thing is, you know, people are like, well, oh, they invested a first round. I get that. I think the the brass will be more, you know be more intrigued to, to poke to poke at the coaches and the coaches will be like we just have to first round or we have to use them like they don't care like they they're putting the best guys in the field right yeah. you can you can win games right now and you know if Williams didn't get hurt Johnson would not have seen the field yeah. like there's no doubt in my mind they 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 were not planning for him to see the field in year one um so oh, it'll be interesting to see what they do now that they're kind of in a hole they haven't beaten, you know, they haven't beaten good teams. Yeah. Um, even though that Eckler's back is, you know, like their their run blocking's been bad. Um, like schematically, they kind of look like they're, you know, pretty pretty much a mess and pretty vanilla. Just all right, let's get Keen down the ball eight, ten times a game and see what we can do. Like Josh Palmer's not beating anyone. You know, he's okay. Right. So it's like you know, you you don't have a like Josh Palmer's okay, but he's a tertiary option in most NFL. Right. Yep. This is not a this is not a secondary guy where it's like with AJ Brown, Devontae Smith, like hey, if Brown's not clicking and if he, you know, if he's getting blanketed, we can go to Devontae or or Waddle, you know, Waddle and Hill or Higgins and Chase and you know, Nakua and Nakua and Cup, right? Yep. You don't have that luxury right now. And if they want to win more games, they have to start figuring out can we do this with Quentin Johnson in a little bit, like in a smaller capacity, or not? Because if not, I mean, you just have to develop the kid and get him on the field. Yeah. Um, but it's interesting to see. I mean, it, it'll be definitely – I'm definitely kind of circling, you know, later dates in the calendar to see what their offense looks like, if he's getting more – if he's actually getting more scheme look. Because right now he's just – he's just kind of out there. He's yeah. playing the Marquez Valdez-Scantling. Oh, wow. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I liked your point about, though, earlier about – People saying we know what a guy is after six weeks. We didn't know what Stefan Diggs would be after six weeks, even though he got on the field earlier than people expected. We certainly didn't know what Adam Thielen would be after his first six weeks. Oh. You know, I'm just, and that's two of the top five um, receivers right now in terms of fantasy production. Um, I don't think we knew what DJ Moore was, exa- we had expectations of what DJ Moore was going to be, but 
he was certainly not a guy who was winning contested catches at a at a high rate at Carolina and didn't know whether he was going to grow into a primary receiver. And we know that Devontae Adams was definitely Struggle. not who he turned out to be. Yeah. And he talked about it. He goes, physically, I knew I could play, but I didn't know, you know, like it took me three years to figure out how to be on the same page with my quarterback, how to run routes and releases against these top defenders. So I just mentioned roughly half of the top 10 in, in, in receivers right now who we didn't know who they were in the first six of the weeks of their career. And you could probably add Amon Ross St. Brown and Nico Collins of the top 12 to, uh, you know, who are part of that top 12 right now and say that even though they were later round draft picks and most of the time with the the mid range draft capital, people are like, well, they might need a little bit more time, you you know, but still that's the, you you know, yeah. Yeah. Instant, instant reactions are, make good tv but they don't make yeah, accurate it's, analysis and it's really based you, you brought it up earlier it's, it's based on you know what round you're drafting if you're a first round graphic you're expected to from a cognitive perspective like be on it on it from day one and have this high level of understanding no it, it is purely an investment it is a it is a bet on what they think this player is going to be yeah. right if you you front offices stay put if they bet on players that become stars right and they can see them being stars especially in the first round so it's like you know you're put you're picking in the 20s which then we think hey this this player quentin johnson can be a star one day right he's not going to be you know you're picking in the 20s this is not a there's not you're not picking jamar chase right this is not a there's not a top five draft pick here but in reality, like the round, after the first, in my opinion, after the first ten picks, just throw the first round out the door. Yeah. It doesn't it doesn't matter. Yeah. Because it, teams trade up, trade back. It, it, the top ten picks, top five picks, you could even say, those are the guys that you you can't miss. Those picks. Yeah. You miss a guy in the twenties, you'll still keep your job. Yeah. Right. But you hit on guys in the twenties, then you're getting extensions, and that's that's where you take more swings as guys like that. Um, you're not picking a guy like Johnson at eight, at ten, yeah. at six. You're not doing that. no, and it's and it, and like you said, it comes down to the ingrained organizational and media biases of draft capital because of the pressure yeah. to succeed yeah. for them, and. You know, the higher the pick, you know, Ryan Riddle told me about this all the time, former defensive end, and he wrote about it at Bleacher Report almost 15 years ago, and I still reference it because the higher the pick, the more money is invested in the player. It leads to more opportunities for the player in practice to succeed in the preseason and regular season games. So draft capital leads to a bias that's rooted in sunk costs. Right. You know, so <laughs> late, late, late picks and UDFAs, they get fewer reps. So right. even if they make fewer mistakes percentage-wise, if you added them up and percentage-wise they had fewer mistakes than their early pick counterparts, well, the, the the problem is is that the mistake among that low volume of reps when the GM sees it or the coach or the media, they it just reinforces their original bias that the guy can't play relative to the guy who's picked earlier. In contrast, the early guy can make more mistakes. On yeah, a higher you can, they want to you want to prove yourself right. Yeah, and they're right? gonna yeah they're gonna say well he just needs more time to develop. So and and then you you know you look at Doug Marone needing per- permission from 
the Jaguars brass to allow, you know, um, James Robinson to actually compete for a significant role. And they said, yes, because they want to get rid of Leonard Fournette, you know, that's all that was about, you know? So, you, you know, we have to understand that with that bias. Yeah. It's like any other business you work in any other business where you've been in operations and either corporate or client services or marketing, they like to sell the dream. And then the operations person lives the nightmare. So, you know, I'm being, I'm taking the skeptical end of that equation. I mean, there's better things with that, but still the, the point being is that, you know, people up top, they're like, well, I've invested this money. We need to make it work. And they may just think, I don't need all this, the explanation. When's it going to work? When's your timeline? And then when you give a realistic timeline, oftentimes what they'll do is go, well, I'm sorry, but that's too long. It needs to be faster. You need to do it more. They put more pressure on it. You don't, that happens in the NFL the same way. You know, you know, if you, if someone comes to you and says, Hey, your competition, you're competing with someone. And we just found out that we could have the same access to this kind of information. How soon can you train your team to get ready to use that information? And it's July, the night of July 3rd. And you go, well, you know, after the July 4th weekend, we should be able to, you know, get kick this off on July 6th and get this running pretty you know, pretty well and get people starting training. They go, no, we need you to have everybody trained by, by Monday. Not, you know, not then. That's a realistic thing that happens out in the world. And, and if you don't think the NFL doesn't go, we paid millions of dollars for this first round guy and the owner isn't going, I don't, I don't get it. Ben Roethlisberger got off to the great start here. Justin Herbert got off to a yeah. great start here. You know, why are you giving me the Patrick Mahomes business? They had an all, they had an all pro player in Alex yeah. Smith last year. That's the only reason Patrick Mahomes yeah. to get on the field is they had an all pro quarterback. Do yeah. we have an all pro quarterback? No. So why can't this guy do it? Even if you know you can try and explain it, and you you can tell you know when you've explained something to somebody, and you know they're not listening even because they're going to yeah. give you an obtuse answer or they're just going to say, no, I refuse. If, if, if did he, did he, or did he not make the pro bowl? And you could sit there and argue, go, come on, man. We know Alex Smith wasn't really like that good of a pro bowl quarterback. Well, he made the pro bowl, you know, yeah. and, and yeah. they do that, you know, they, people, nah, it's that. a, it, that's the thing too. Like a lot, of, like really good general managers, understand the developmental process of the athlete right yeah and they kind of stay out of the way of the coach in a state they'll have their obviously they have the final say and who gets drafted but look at brad holmes in detroit yeah. all right he, he hasn't thrown a fit about Jameis williams nope right he's letting he's letting that staff do their thing with the kid and even Jameer Gibbs, you know how excited he was to draft Gibbs in the first at even 12, right? He's like, this kid's going to be really good one day. I'll let you guys handle when that's going to happen. I know it's going to. I'll let you guys handle when that's going to be. Because he trusts the staff to make him look look good, right? Yeah. And a lot of a lot of GMs don't. They just want to be proven right immediately. Uh, and they get scared about their investment because also, too, it hurts their pockets if the investment doesn't go right. So that's an interesting one. And talking about an investment that has gone right currently, C.J. Stroud, he is beating the curve. He's also beating the people 
who talked about the S2 test. That's been a really fun discussion is, wait, I thought this kid wasn't going to be NFL ready because he took a test and was bad at the test. Yes. Like, why, why, why is he good? And that's been a fun discussion to see. What have you seen from Stroud so far that has led you to believe that this is this kid is not only for real, but he's here to stay? Um, I think first of all is the ability to kind of scout against his tendencies, self scouting against his tendencies. What impressed me against Atlanta was watching a play where earlier in the in the second half he throws an over route and the cut the leverage above that route cuts off the route and nearly intercepts it. jesse bates the third nearly just cuts off the route and, sh- and drops an interception and from what i've seen of stroud throughout his tape one of the weaknesses in his game was always assessing cut leverage over the top of receivers he always seemed to be a little bit overconfident about targeting players where the defender had an advantage and then late in the game he throws a post. He throws basically a double move that ends with a post route to Dalton Schultz for a touchdown. Is that the Schultz? Yeah, yeah. The, the improv route. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that was cool. Yeah, and I thought, look at Bob. At first, I thought, look at Bobby Slowick. He 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 saw what Stroud was doing and thought, okay, they're probably going to anticipate this. Let's draw something up that just says, hey, improvise this, do this, run a double move next time, have him do that. But it was Stroud who who suggested it and slope yeah. was like sure let's do it you know do this go there and he did it so that really impressed me that he he took a what's a perceived weakness of his game from a scouting point of view and weaponized it against um the defense so i i, I really like that how fast he's getting rid of the ball um yep. is is a really good thing um you know i don't think he's make he's He's even if you're getting rid of results process wise, he's not making a lot of mistakes. You know, yeah. there's some that he's getting gotten away with, but for the most part, he hasn't made a lot of mistakes. So he's he's made this offense look a lot better in the passing game than it has looked in years. Oh, um, my you God. know, yeah, by like by far. Yeah. And I think it's really interesting to see. I think too from the beginning, what I liked when they drafted Tank Dell, and you listen to, you know, Ryan's and that staff say, "Why did you draft Tank Dell? He's an you know undersized receiver." He's like, uh, "CJ wanted him. Like that was the first thing CJ told us. This he, he wants this kid. So you're putting the quarterback in a position where he can not only be transparent." But he can kind of prove ownership over decisions at a young age. That's super important. Like what you mentioned about Bobby Slowick saying, hey, CJ, what do you think about this? Yeah, let's do this. I, I, I want to do this. And making the quarterback the decision maker, which is a super powerful thing. And I think when you talk about CJ Stroud, you know, in the, in the S2 test, it, look, it doesn't matter what you score on, on that test. Until the bullets are flying, until until two hundred sixty five pounds of Avion Clown is about to rip your head off, you have to make a decision. That's when it matters, and the more confident you are in those situations, the more confident you are going into those situations, the better prepared that you'll be. And that's what 
that's the Houston's Houston staff has done with Stroud. They've, they've weaponized him with full confidence. Yeah. Of, hey, we are okay with decisions that you make. We are okay with managerial decisions that you are making. We're asking you for input here, and we're going to be asking you for input on game day when the bullets are flying at you, and we trust you. And that is why that is working out. And that is not what, think about it, Trey Lance didn't get that. Mm-mm, no. no, no, Zach Wilson didn't get that. Jared Goff Justin, didn't get it in, Je- in L.A. Jared Goff didn't get it in L.A. Justin Fields hasn't gotten it. Um, Trevor Lawrence didn't get it in his rookie year, obviously. And that's really, from that standpoint, that is the biggest burden for a rookie quarterback, in my opinion, from a, a mental, like a mental emotional standpoint. Because what you are asking these kids to do, the 22 years old coming in, hey, you are going to be the face of a multi-million dollar business at 22 years old. Think about that. Yeah. Right? Everything we do is centered around you, but we're not going to let you make a decision. Yeah. We're not going to let you impact impact that and give you some confidence and ownership in terms of an accountability in a sense too of what you can do um, to create structure within your own foundation as a person. And that really makes a pretty profound impact negatively on the actual athlete and quarterback because you, you go into a situation where Zach Wilson wasn't ready emotionally for the NFL. Absolutely not. There's that freaking meme of him. I'm trapped. <laughs> There's like Jim and Waddle and all these dudes, and he's just like looking around, like, "Oh my God, this is like, this is, this is real." Yeah. He wasn't ready, but your goal is to make make those guys as confident as they could be. Does it work out all the time? No, but that's the thing: is confidence and the ability to give CJ Stroud ownership is, in my opinion. He's still there. I might have lost Angelo here. Let's see if we can. Uh... So, yeah, I mean, when you talk about empowerment, I mean, I've, I think I've told the story here and a lot of other places about Robert Griffin and Mike Shanahan and how Mike Shanahan really, you know, being the West Coast offensive guy and how West Coast offensive coaches oftentimes don't really empower their quarterbacks early on, if at all. Um, you know, it's a it's refreshing to see that empowerment because quarterbacks are people always say they're the CEO, but to me they're the operations manager. They're the ones that on the ground getting shit done. They've got to interact with the higher ups. They've got to be a face of what's going on on the ground floor where where your public sees the operation, whether it produces or not. <laughs> And they've got to relate to the people at the on the ground level and lead them at the ground level. How are you going to get them to be good at managing football if you don't let them manage football? Right. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, so you've got. 100%. So I love the fact that, that you brought this point up because it doesn't mean that you have to throw the whole thing at them all at once. You know, certainly Shane Steichen didn't do that with Anthony Richardson. Um, certainly he didn't do it with C, uh, um, Jalen Hurts either. But what he did was, or they, did, they didn't do it with Josh Allen, um, but they slowly opened things up. So yep. that they, they gave them decisions from the get-go 
and then they continued to expand on the number of decisions they could make because they wanted to give these guys high leverage opportunities to succeed with those choices and then continue to expand it as they gained in their skill level familiarity acclimation to the league and so it's important whereas some teams just didn't do that at all you know nope. some coaches just said nope it's mine i this is my offense not yeah. your offense yeah and it's 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 that you know this is my way and you have to kind of conform to what i'm comfortable in not what you're comfortable you're on the field yeah like you're the one where the, like i said the bullets are flying you're the one doing that it should be the comfort. It should be a combination of the comfort level and what the offensive corner and the coaching staff is teaching, and what the quarterback is comfortable in learning. And yeah. that is the really intricate part of what separates mediocre coaches from good coaches, from good coaches to great coaches, is they understand that. And we see in places where the offensive corners do not understand it. Most specifically, if you look at Pittsburgh and Matt Canada. Right, look at Tennessee and Tim Kelly. Right, you look at the Saints and Pete Carmichael. Those are the three biggest ones where I can put an X around those. These are staffs that don't understand not only the personnel, they don't understand the strengths of their own players, most specifically the quarterback. Yeah. Right, like all three of those offenses are full of dysfunction from top to bottom. You can even go as far – go to Luke Getz in Chicago. Same thing, right? It's like when there's all that dysfunction organizationally, it boils down a lot to, in my opinion, most of the time, it's the offensive player has not done a good enough job of getting the quarterback comfortable with what he's teaching and giving the quarterback ownership over what the offensive player is going to be teaching to everybody else. And that's where it kind of goes wrong, right? I mean, it, it, it becomes the offensive quarter's offense, not a collective decision on the how we should operate on the field of play. So that's a big deal, man. I mean, you look at like CJ Stroud, man, Bobby Slowick is doing a great job of of having that, you know, collective ownership of it. And that's a big deal when we're talking about young quarterbacks and, and even so like in Tennessee, right? Like Will Levis is probably next up. Man, like that's not good gonna luck. look very pretty. Yeah, like that, I, that's luck. not gonna. I don't care how talented you are. Like he could have the town of Patrick Mahomes. Like that is gonna be a very dysfunctional system to work within. Yeah, and that's not changing anytime soon. Right? Yeah. Put someone else in in Kenny Pickett's shoes over there in Pittsburgh. It's still gonna be a ton of dysfunction, and they have weapons all over the place now. Yeah, I mean when you look at when you look at say like Shanahan and and McVeigh, we can criticize them, but at the same time, they're winning. They're they're oh, yeah. coaching winning teams, and their system has worked well enough to give them the advantage. Oh. And sometimes you can manage that way. Now, is it going to be conducive for growth of a young player? Probably not. And you, you know, so you could look at Jared Goff, and we talked about that. He got maybe thrown under the bus a little bit, whereas with Trey Lance, it was probably more of a, he doesn't fit what I'm trying to get him to do. And we're in a win now window and he didn't advance quickly enough to my taste. And I have a crucible of what I want, you know, I'm putting players through fine. It's worked for him. I'm okay with that. But at the same time, you know, you brought up those teams, but in contrast, let's talk about, a, I think a guy who is been, a, has been a good coach, but, um, 
but you know had to kind of see the light this year and that's john harbaugh you know because you know we look at lamar jackson and you know on the surface you could just look at this and say well watching him play right now um he's if you just looked at fantasy points as a indicator of like production he's 30 fantasy points behind his career year now that sounds like a lot because that's like five points per game over the first six weeks um that's but he's the number four quarterback in in fantasy football right now so he was a number three quarterback in 2019 the difference in those five points per game if you ask me is that the fact that in 2021 2022 Opposing defenses said, you know, this whole party with the spread offense, we're shutting this down. We're putting cover two, and we're going to make you run the ball more. We're going to make you, you know, throw the ball shorter. You're not going to be able to bomb us down the field like you've been doing for, you know, the past five to seven years. Um, And that, to me, is the difference because if he's still ranked in a similar spot and you look at where he's at production-wise, his his Completion percentage is nearly 70%, which was significantly higher than what it was in his career year. You know, touchdown interceptions, he has fewer interceptions. Um, you, you know, he is his yards per attempt are, are, are not as big, but that's okay. You know, and you're seeing him do this with some, you know, similar situation where it's young players. Nobody's really established or all the way back like Odell Beckham. You know, he's not in his prime anymore, probably. Still a very good receiver, but you're also in a new offense. And that new offense, in Todd Bunkin's offense, he stated himself, it's going to take a while for everybody to get on the same page with what we're trying to do. But one of the things that's quite notable last week was Lamar Jackson saw blitz packages, saw different looks, pre-snap, and said, wait a minute, let's get into this, and got chunk plays. So, and, and when you get chunk plays like that, off of making changes and you're and we come to find out yeah greg roman didn't allow lamar jackson to make a single change at the line of scrimmage you you know now think about that you you know that's the huge difference in terms of what you your point being that he was you know you're allowing him to be a manager and make decisions and now it's paying off now we could go a little deeper on this and i'm not saying it's necessarily this or not but it looks like it to me sometimes, you know, when you look at him in college, people were like, there are a lot of critics that said he's not really a pro quarterback prospect. Well, why not? Cause he's a, he's a runner and he's going to have to really do well in a pro system. But Bobby Petrino's system was a pro system. And Bobby Petrino was regarded as one of the best architects of NFL offenses at the time, as he left the NFL to go back to college. You know, it was, and he had a pro style offense at Louisville. Lamar Jackson spent every morning, you know, working with VR goggles, literally going through real game situations and pointing out coverages and protections and figuring out dealing with decision making, you know, matrices, doing that every morning. You know, they covered that type of thing. Then they said, well, you know, they, they made the excuse. Some people said he wasn't a quarterback. He gets in, yep. oh, play, yeah. plays well. Now, what I then what I hear, and from people even that I like respect for the work that they've done over the years, and people who who I like, but just will say, well, he's got a special offense, and he's not the traditional quarterback who he's going to need. You know, he his offense is always going to have to be a little bit different. 
Well, Drew Brees couldn't throw uh, a low trajectory deep out. Deshaun Watson couldn't throw a low trajectory deep out. You know, Brock Purdy can't throw a low trajectory deep out very well. Um, you know, but they all are guys that played winning football and we didn't look at them all the time and say that it was a special needs offense for them to do this. So what gives? And I, and there's a part of me that looks at this and says, well, there's, there's a side of bias that just says, we don't think this guy's good and there's no solution and just totally don't have anything to do with them. Let's just exclude them and write them off. And then there's the other side of people who want to be allies to the guy who I think sometimes that whole savior mentality that comes in of things where you can have a savior mentality that says, we want to be on the side of what we think is the right thing that this guy, this guy deserves the same opportunity to prove that he is worthwhile at this position. And you guys are biased about it for things that are ignorant. Um, but then they come in and apply this mentality of like, we have the answer to how we're going to make that happen. As opposed to asking the person or people who are usually the aggrieved in this situation, like what, what needs to be done? What could, you know, what, and the answer probably nine times or 9.999 times out of 10 is just give me an opportunity to do what everyone else does and everything will be fine. And instead, yeah. instead let's, let's make a special offense for him where he doesn't have any, you know, and then what it ends up doing is creating more limitations that reinforce the very stereotypes and biases that you're rally, railing against because of this mentality of like, I have the answers and I'm not thinking about the person who can provide them. So I'm so happy for Lamar Jackson because when I look at this, that may not be what intentionally happened, but for Jim, John Harbaugh to say, to, to Court Warner, you know, before this game in London, look, we just realized that our offense wasn't, had stopped growing and it wasn't growing to allow Lamar, our quarterback to be all that he can be. Yeah. And that's an admission of, we put the shackles on this guy because we thought he needed it and he convinced us otherwise. And all these things that people would blame Lamar Jackson for and his development a lot of it has to do with, well, if you're, you have a shitty offensive line that's injured, your team's in, half injured all the time, and you're playing, you, you know, a, teams are going to be aggressive with you, your run game's banged up, your defense is banged up, and right. we're like, we're going to pin you in a corner, and guess what? You can't change whatever Greg Roman's telling you what to do. You know, yeah. you just got to, you just got to figure out how to deal with it. And somebody goes, well, that was a stupid decision. Well, you know, the the answer back that you would want to make, but you can't because you got to be a class act and be a leader. You've got, would be, well, if they didn't put me in this situation to begin with, I would have never had to be in this corner to try and do this crazy thing. I would have actually called this play or made this change, or we would have had some easy answers for some things and would have been fine. Yeah, and it, it's crazy because the one thing I always get too is, like Marquise Brown leaving. Remember when he left? He's like, oh, thank God I'm not there anymore. Like he's yeah. like, this is like I can actually be somewhere where I can actually get the ball. And we come to learn, like you're exactly right. Like there was no checks that Lamar could make. Like he couldn't hot run. Yeah, he 
he couldn't put Marquise or anyone else in that offense in a situation to to have success, right? And that's the quarterback's job once you get to a certain level. Right? It's, it's, it's you have to be on the same page of everybody else. And it's less in it's less in scheme. It is more in flow. So right now we're seeing in the new offense that he's been able to talk about is he's able to make decisions like we talked about, take ownership of that, right? And he'd take accountability and, you know, get his playmakers the ball, right? And and he's done a really good job of that. And he's done a good job of getting a young guy like Zay Flowers, like, accustomed to NFL ball after playing at Boston College. Like, Zay Flowers didn't play world beaters with it. Zay Flowers tape. It looked... It looks like a high schooler playing, you know, playing yeah, against his yeah. his little brothers, right? I mean, Zay Flowers is an absolute beast in college, and and the kid's a baller. But I mean, he's made him really comfortable in being a potential number one NFL wide receiver. Yeah. And I think that Lamar hasn't had the opportunity to do that. He's had the safety net and Mark Andrews, who's a you know a top five tight end in the league. Besides Andrews, he hasn't had a true number one guy that he could help foster their development. And I think that's something that's that Lamar, you could tell that he's liking that piece of it because he actually gets to be a leader. Yeah. He gets to do that. And I think that's a really important piece to what this Ravens offense is becoming because this, you know, this Sunday is going to be a huge test against one of the league's best defenses, the Detroit Lions, right? And, and another very good staff and a very good offense and a good defense. Um, but that's a good litmus test to see where they're at. But, yeah, I think really, you know, it, it's it's one of those things where you look at, yeah, there was a special offense, but for what reason was it a special offense? Yeah. It was a special offense because of your, your preordained notions that this kid was basically dumb. Yep. And you thought he was just a running quarterback. No. No, no, no. He, in college, he literally proved that he could play in a pro-style system. He has arm talent. He doesn't do a lot wrong, but yet you're labeling him because he is the most athletic quarterback yeah. to come into the NFL since Michael Vick. And that's what it came down to is we stuck the label mm -hmm. on him and said, ah, must be that. Yeah. And well, it turns out everybody was wrong. Like, he's actually a really good pocket passer like he does a lot of things well he feels pressure well he can make changes and checks live scrimmage he does everything that he does he checks every box that an nfl quarterback needs to check so i mean it's i'm i'm, I'm really happy to see him flourishing in a system that's that's geared towards his success as well as the success of his playmakers. Yeah, I mean, all I know is that this young, dumb, athletic quarterback people were calling him or implying that he was. He, we all, I mean, anybody who watched him, even I had guys who were like, I think he needs, he may need an offense that's different. But they all marveled over his pocket presence, like he has a yeah. pocket presence in class. But this guy who. Oh, yeah. Had his mom represent him during the draft. That worked out. Everybody told him that wasn't going to work out. Everybody said it wasn't going to work out, that he was going to be thrive and, and lead. He's done all that. Oh, and then and then all these all these guys who were labeled smart quarterbacks who would be the exact perfect face of the franchise, none of them negotiated their own contract. None of nope. them and, and acquitted themselves nicely, according to agents 
who actually looked at the contract and said he acquitted himself well. Like this is the shocker of all shockers. I don't know. All I know is that the guy basically confounds expectations at every turn. And if that's not a leader in the way that he's gone about doing it, um, then there are no leaders at the quarterback position in the NFL because right. he's, I, I would take him probably above and beyond everyone else in, in, in terms of leadership, just on the fact alone that he's handled this with a level of equanimity that he has not alienated anybody that we know nope. of on his team. They love playing for him. His coach loves him. The, the fact that he could change his coach's mind and say, and be able to say on TV, we didn't let him grow is a big deal. So, oh yeah, 100%. So, yeah. So let's two, let's do two more things with quarterbacks, and we'll talk about some tight ends and a and a running back here. But, um, you know, one thing you know, you brought up the S two processing, um, and I just you know there was another one out there that I don't remember the name of, like AIQ, I think is the name sure. of it. You know, and S two when. That that was the big name, but everybody was saying, well, that, you know, it trashed Stroud's, you know, his scoring was, was really low. And then they came out pre-draft and said, listen, he had a, when we tested him, the team asked us to test him at like late at night after a long trip and things, all these different things were off schedule and bad. And then they said, now nah, you got to get it done now because we need, we have a schedule of things that we need to do. And so he took it at a bad time and then we reissued it at another time and he performed much higher on that score. So they actually kind of like, I believe that because they said it pre-draft. Like they did, you know, whereas the other one from what I'm hearing basically said they have a finished product in terms of what they do and he didn't score high and that's that. And he's basically confined that. But I'm just, you know, for me, when I th hear that is at least the S2 folks are like, we understand that there are conditions where someone can have a bad, um, a bad performance and we can just write it off as a bad performance as opposed to someone else that says, nope, that's it. You know, we, we don't care. We're not going to give it another, give them another opportunity. But what do you think about these tests that pro, you know, for processing? I mean, I think there's good things to be, there's probably some good things that could come out of it, but I can also see where there's unintentional consequences that, that may never really get right. Yeah. I, I think simply it's an, it's really interesting because what you're asking someone to do is vastly different than what they're asked to do on the field of play. So like I said before, when the bullets are, when the bullets are flying, like that's when it really matters, right? When the lights are bright and you're on a big stage and, and you have to make decisions, you know, on a whim, that's when it matters. But when you're taking a test, right, It you the test doesn't determine the intellect of the person taking it. Right? So what ends up happening is you get, you know, confined to a box of you are a mediocre XYZ at the S2 whatever. And then people said, oh, he can't process information. Well, it, processing information that you're given in a closed environment and test is way different than the open environment that you're given on the field of play when you have to make decisions in order for your team to score the ball, in order for you not to take a sack, in order for you to convert a third and long. 
Those situations are vastly different than what you're given on any test. So for me, I like it in, in a sense where devil's advocate, like it in the sense where, hey, you can get a sense of how someone will pick up a playbook. That's one thing you can get. Retain information, regurgitate that information, um, and understand it at a high level. Um, that's something you can do. Right? I think that the, the comprehension of it is that's something yeah. that's, that, that is important. But it doesn't make sense because if you're evaluating a quarterback, the smartest quarterback in the NFL is Josh Downs, likely. One of them, obviously, for, I'm not going to do the the whole NASA thing and all that. We know who he is. But if he is the smartest quarterback in the NFL, why is he not the best quarterback in the NFL? Yeah. Right? That that's, Those don't coincide because being smart and processing information in real time are very different things. Josh Dobbs is a good NFL quarterback. I think he is a either a high-end backup or a low-end starter. I don't think he'll ever be probably more than a low to mid-end starter, right? That's okay. But you have to have that certain level of improvisational intellect. And that is the stuff you cannot teach, the stuff that Patrick Mahomes is made of. Yep. Josh Allen is made. Jalen Hurts is made. That is the stuff that you can't teach that can't be on a test. And that is the stuff that will win you Super Bowl. Yep. Like that is what that stuff is made. So I like it from that standpoint. If you want to, you know, you, you can label your, your quarterback as X or whatever. But CJ Stroud has proven you that he is doing all the things that the test said he shouldn't be doing. Yeah. So I don't know. I mean, I, I think those are good for, you know, certain things like, like the playbook and understanding, you know, how quickly players will understand scheme and things like that. But in real time, it doesn't really make much sense. Yeah. My buddy Russ Landy would probably put it this way. Good organizations would use it as a layer of information and they would study it over a period of years and say, okay, where does it fail? What are the types of quarterbacks where it fails? Where are the type of quarterbacks where it shows us some success? Or more importantly, where did, like you said, where it, can it really be predictive? And oh, right. the playbook, because there's different types of intelligence and physical intelligence is a very important thing. One of the, one of the most important, you know, a good example of this is that like, to, you know, there, there's a study that, you know, police officers often talk about with guns. And I, you know, I don't care what side of the fence you are about gun control and all that. But there, there's arguments that people say we should arm citizens with guns. And I'm just going to state what police departments often say. And look, my my father-in-law was a was a gun instructor. In addition to being a detective for many years at the Baltimore Police Department, he also instructed firearm training for police officers. Okay. So... When I ask him about that, he's like, listen, the number of hours that you've got to put in to become competent just using a gun on one level is fairly high. And then people are always overconfident about how well they would use a gun in a crisis situation. And you can get training doing crisis, you know, crisis type of training for weeks on end every day for or even months. And then when we simulate a crisis, 
Some guys can't get the gun out of the holster. Some shoot themselves. Some shoot innocent people. I mean, they're using, you know, dummy bullets or die guns or things like that. Some just make an awful mistake and get shot themselves by you know, by the perpetrator. Sure. And this stuff happens all the time. And a good example today is like, so I have a young dog and I take him to the dog park almost every day and he's got friends that he plays with. And occasionally people bring in dogs who we just ask the, the basic question, is your dog friendly? And I found nine times out of 10 that if the person doesn't say anything, gives a smart ass answer or, you know, doesn't want to engage. It's just time to leash up your dog and leave because they, they're like the parent who doesn't really understand their kid. doesn't mean the dog's bad. just means the dog's not ready for this situation. So, you know, he comes in, this guy comes in today, got a bunch. There's three of us with playful dogs who play pretty rough. Like they're not aggressive. They just, you know, grab each other by the neck right. a little bit and, and they let go when the other one doesn't like it. And they, they, they sure, tackle sure. each other yeah. and wrestle. So, so his dog, he comes in, we invite him over to, to say hello. He goes to across the park and sits down at a bench and starts talking on the phone Has a big boxer. Boxer comes over. Everything seems to be okay. My dog and another dog start to play with him. And then he decides to do, make something that's a very like well-known act of aggression with a dog. He just tries to mount one of the dogs. And, and so dog doesn't like it, gives him a warning. He doesn't stop. Next thing you know, a fight breaks out. So my dog and his dog are fighting. And so I ha and my dog's probably been around 200 dogs at this point and has gotten into a fight three times. So I know my dog gets, he gets along with everybody, but I bring this little squeaky toy. I cut out from the squeak, the stuffed animal, the little squeaky thing, because I found that when, if I need him to disengage, I can make that noise. And he like instinctively looks for it and disengages. Even if he's not aggressive, he's just hang, you know, being not listening. I can do that and he'll like stop, you know, and all the dogs will stop. So someone, you know, someone taught me this. So I'm looking for, as this fight's breaking out, I'm thinking, I was thinking to myself today, let me have this. I'm going to put it in my front pocket. I'll know where it is in case something escalates, you know, haven't had to use it at all. And then today it happens. And it, while it only took like 10 seconds for it, it to be over, I'm watching this happen and I'm like looking for the toy, you know, <laughs> and I'm like, sure. you know, like if you asked, if you asked me to be up on a stage with 5,000 people watching and to play some music, I'm used to that. I could probably do that and I would be okay, you know, but I'm sitting in a park with three people, with three other people and a fourth guy with his dog, you know, talking on the phone as his dog's trying to attack mine and my dog clamped onto him and I need my dog to stop and his dog to stop. And I can't find the thing that's in my front pocket, you know, because I haven't, it's not like I trained doing this, you know, right. and seconds sure. are going yeah. by and I go, my dog's going to put a hole in this dog's face, you yeah. know, like if this, and nothing happened, both dogs were okay, you know, and it, and it was fine. And it got, and then they, everyone resumed playing and it was, and it was good time with the rest of the time. But that's a good point about like, you have to understand that like processing information is different depending on the, the subject matter, how much training you do yeah. and how much practice you've had in the moment 
when shit goes left that you didn't expect. Yes, you know, hundred percent. The ten the ten thousand hours thing is a real thing. Yeah. Like and to actually gain expertise in any realm, that's I mean, it just takes constant experience and repetition. Yeah. And yeah, I mean you, you don't get it without actual actually experiencing those situations. Yeah. And yeah, yeah it, it's it, that's exactly correct. Yeah. That's a great that's a great example, by the way. Yeah, I mean, it's it's not a fun one to have to share, but my dog. No, but it's a good one, and everybody's you know, everybody's good, and things happen occasionally. Kids don't get along, dogs don't get along. It's people don't get along sometimes, as long as you get it worked out. Um, but uh, but yeah, so I mean, looking at this, I think there's going to be value to it down the line, but it's not a magic pill, right? And the media likes to create it as a magic pill. So let's finish our quarterback section with this. I, you know, I'm looking at the Chiefs, and we looked at the Chiefs pre-draft, and everybody's like, pick their guy who's going to like replace Juju Smith-Schuster as that receiver after Travis Kelsey. Like, everybody had their bets on somebody. Not you. You're like, yeah. But, like, you know, was it Kadarius Toney? Was it Sky Moore? Was it going to be anybody? And the answer so far has been none of the above. Um, and so I started looking back on this, Angelo, and – I'm not calling you Angelo because I'm looking at Angelo fantasy, but Brandon, I'm looking Either back at fun. this, you know, and and I'm sitting here thinking, okay, Andy Reid, watching, looking at his, you know, production with rookie with receivers that he's his regimes have drafted in Philadelphia for 13 years, guys who had at least 800 yards, you know, how many of him, how many of those guys did he have? who had like at least 800 yards, you know, during that time. Well, from 1999 to 2000, if you don't count James Thrash, who he inherited, who had 833 in 1999, he had Reggie Brown one season with 816. He had Deshaun Jackson for four Mm -hmm. seasons, who was great. You had Jeremy Macklin for three seasons. That's it. Then, then he had to get bring in two free agents, Terrell Owens, where that imploded after one season, and Kevin Curtis, the former Ram. Yes. Yeah, that's it from '99 to 2012. And Donovan McNabb, by the way, was a pretty good quarterback who actually was an AP Offensive Player of the Year and an MVP one year, and took them to a Super Bowl. And that's I'm giving you basically six receivers who who exceeded 800 yards. You know, that's not a lot when you think of like of MVP caliber quarterback. Because when I think of like Peyton Manning or you think of Joe Burrow or you think of players now sometimes, I mean, I know Burrow isn't one of those guys, but when you think of a couple of those guys, you go, they can support multiple options in the passing game right. at wide receiver. Like, You've got T. Higgins. You've got Jamar Chase. You've got Tyler Boyd, at least at, at one point, that that could be the case. Now, you know, obviously I'm discounting Travis Kelsey with the Chiefs and calling him a tight end as opposed to a wide receiver. Sure. But when we look at the Chiefs, they had an even bigger list under Reed. And the guys that have had it are Jason Avant in 2015, one season, Juju Smith-Schuster last year, and they moved on from him. Tyree Kill for one, two, three, four, five seasons, obviously, all-world player. So after that, they've got a long list of guys 
didn't get at least 800 yards. So, you know, with that in mind, Andy Reid's system, should we just give, you know, should we just say what it is, which is he's got a great quarterback who could probably support multiple receivers in a different offense. But what is it about this offense that you can't get like Peyton Manning-like or Tom Brady-like multiple options that you can spread the ball around and it's concentrated to like one, maybe two yes. guys. Yes, I think, and I was thinking about this earlier today, and I think the biggest thing is we talk about, you know, the improvisational skill set of some quarterbacks. Patrick Mahomes probably is top two all time in the improviser category, right? To, well, in order to have another player on offense to be elite, they have to be another high-level improviser. Travis Kelsey is about as high as you'll get at the tight end position. You can you don't have to call him a tight end. He's a receiver. Um, Tyree Kill, great improviser. Holy cow. They don't – those guys don't grow on trees. Like, there is an element – There, those guys are inherent risk takers at the position. But that is who Patrick Mahomes is. So you're like with guys like Brady and Manning, they thrive with structure. And then if they got out of structure, they that was also part of their structure, right? Like that yeah. that they understood where they're going when they need to go. They remember every angle, every detail. Bingo. Patrick like, Mahomes yeah. just makes shit up and he's so good at what he makes up in real time that it works. And that is the beauty of Mahomes. But that's also why he can't carry all these successful receivers. Even a guy like Juju Smith-Schuster is a veteran at this point, right? He was okay last year. But he's – I mean, they're going to struggle, I think, if they can't find another guy like that that can rein it in, that can be on the same improvisational page as Mahomes. Kadarius Tony, another great improviser. However, there is zero what we call structural improvisation. Yeah. There's just no structure at all on anything he does. So you don't know what you're getting on a given play. So it's hard for Mahomes to trust his level of improvisation because it's so volatile. Yeah. But that's the beauty of it. Like Travis Kelsey, you wouldn't even know he made a mistake. Or would you wouldn't even know he was improvising something. Of how well he sells different things and different movement patterns, and he's just an absolute genie out there sometimes, right? But it's on the same page as Patrick Mahomes is. So that's my philosophy on why that offense is going to be so hard for a receiver to work in. It's because they can't match the level of improviser that their quarterback is, and that is a all-time level. So either you have to have another all-time improviser or you have to have a guy and bring in someone that can rise to that. Hasn't been Sky Moore. Hasn't been Justin Watson. Hasn't been Marquez Valdez-Scantling. Hasn't been a lot of these guys. I'll be honest, Rashi Rice looks really damn good. I don't think he's that guy, but I think he should be utilized more often. I think on their roster, the one guy that sticks out to me the most is Justin I think if there is a guy that can be the receiver version of that in this current iteration of Andy Reid's offense, 
it's Justin Ross. Um, reason being is we saw a little bit of little bit of that clumsy, especially with the 50-50 balls that can potentially catch stuff. And that's something that Mahomes doesn't really have right now. He doesn't have that guy of, all right, I'm going to throw it up and see what happens. He had that with Tyree Kill, even though Tyreek's a smaller guy. Yeah. He knew Tyreek was a baller. Yeah. And that's going to be something interesting to kind of look at moving forward with that offense. But, yeah, I think that the improvisational tactics and all that stuff is the reason, I think, why he hasn't found a running mate in that regard. First of all, I think that's a brilliant point. I think that's the point of the night, you know, is about how important the improvisation is with him. And I'm also glad that you said Justin Ross and I didn't because I'm always touting that guy. So it's it's nice to hear someone else touting him. I'm not even going to say any more about that, but I will say this. I would, I think a good comparison maybe to, to add on to what you're saying is think about comedians, okay? And, and a lot of comedians end up being talk show hosts. And talk show hosts have to be pretty good improvisers because they may have a set list of the things they're going to talk about, but then sometimes people will riff or go off off script and you've got to moderate the show and keep it under control. So a Johnny Carson, a Jay Leno, David Letterman, um, you know Conan O'Brien, Arsenio Hall, they all had to be able to do that to some level. But then when someone comes in who was an absolute genius of improvisation comes in and starts riffing off of things. You can see just how stiff these guys are in comparison to them. Like, you know who I'm about to bring up Robin Williams. If Robin Williams, Robin Williams, I'll just put it this way. If you ever watched, and a lot of you probably don't remember this if you're listening, but I'm sorry, you know, that's that's the problem when you have a podcast host who's older okay so i have just a longer bank of things to remember so there was a comic relief hbo special for back in the 80s and 90s and and they had billy crystal whoopi goldberg and and robin williams oh hosting God. it okay. what a trio they were a great trio and there and the whole lorena bobbitt john wayne bobbitt story came out and if you're not familiar with it John Wayne Bobbitt and Lorena Bobbitt were a married couple. He was allegedly abusive to Lorena Bobbitt in a lot of ways, physically, sexually abusive to her. And one night she got fed up and she literally cut off his penis and took that part and drove off with it. Okay. And then tried to dump it on a side street. Okay. And it became this huge news story for months and months and months. So of course the, the trial, everything that happened, and so when this comic relief episode happened, every comedian told John Wayne Bobbitt and Lorena Bobbitt jokes. Okay. All of them, everyone got up on stage and told them, and they're doing this for hours, like all weekend. And if you watched even like a third of the show and just picked your favorite comedians, you got sick of Bobbitt jokes because they were just, you know, you're just like, I've, I, you're oversaturated. Robin Williams comes up last, okay? And he literally launches into Bobbitt jokes. But because he's such, he's so original, he took it from the point of view of the penis. 
like literally was like oh, oh my god oh, i gotta, I gotta whole, watch this the whole point oh, of view you, yeah watch it on youtube he's literally Stop pretending it. to be the penis oh, on a trip away from god. his owner okay and it's like that's the physical so comedy the cons the concept ah, everything was it was the funniest thing by far and you're laughing your guts out and you're going that's the difference between everyone else and a genius of the highest order is that he can come on stage and take something that was completely 100%. pounded in the ground. They buried the horse. They beat the horse under the ground. And then he comes out and basically says, no, this is look at this beautiful elephant that I'm about to show you, that's you know? Hilarious. And that's, so when he would get on to a talk show and do these types of things or what's my line anyway, you'd seen him do the improv yeah, yeah, like, on yeah, what's yeah, my yeah. line anyway. Sure. I mean, those guys could keep up with them, but you could see that oh, he there's, was still, there's, there's levels. Yes. And he was levels above and he made those guys sometimes just like lose it because of what he could do. That's incredible. So it's that same thing with Mahomes. Mahomes is like the Robin Williams of quarterbacks in that, in that regard. And yeah. I think the way you described it is, is so perfect for people to understand. Yeah. Yeah. So before we go, we've, you know, we've got some tight ends here. Michael Mayer, you know, he's had a couple of, a couple of notable outputs, you know, they weren't like great fantasy outputs, but mm -hmm. you know, we're starting to see. Sorry about the quick cutoff there, but I had an unexpected technical malfunction. Um, essentially I ran out of memory for recording all the things that I do. I normally maintain that a little bit better, but it's in the middle of the season and I forgot. So um, the pot, the podcast essentially stopped for me, and that's where we left off. We'll pick up on some of the tight ends, Michael Mayer, Sam Laporta. We'll talk. We were going to talk a little bit about Zach Evans, but you can always go to mattwaldmanrsp.com um, and learn more about Zach Evans there, or, of course, check your rookie scouting portfolio. Thanks again. Brandon and I always have a great time. You can find Brandon at Angelo underscore FF. On Twitter or X, you can find me at Matt Waldman, RSP. We had a good time. Hope you did too. See you again.